Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Heather Adams and Julian Ashton. You're joining us for Turning Pages on River Radio. Over the next hour, we'll be chatting about books. I've been talking to novelist Cara Hunter. And we'll be talking from the comfort about we'll be talking about walks from the comfort of our chairs. Thank you for joining me. Uh, you've, we've got a great show coming up for you this morning. So alongside, we've got Julian Ashton. Julian, good morning. Good morning, Heather. If I can say your name properly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, a bit of practice, you know, over the years. Um, so, Heather, what have we got uh, coming up this morning? Well, we've got a great show. Thank you very much. Um, I've been talking to Cara Hunter, whose latest book, The Whole Truth, is Richard and Judy's summer book club pick. Mm. That's difficult to say. It is. She was on the show a couple of weeks ago and I had a lovely time chatting to her about her recent book, which is absolutely brilliant. I can't recommend it enough. Great. It's called The Whole Truth. Um, And I couldn't resist asking her about how she got into writing and about the books that inspire her. So my interview with Cara will be coming up. And also, I'm about to go on holiday. Uh Uh-huh. Are you indeed? I'm about to go on a walking holiday. So, as you know, we've been looking at books that have walking as a theme. But we're not obviously specifically talking walking books, fabulous as many of those are. We've chosen fictional books, and we've even gone back in time to look at walking in the company of a few gossips from the 18th century. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news. You're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, any great book recommendations, if you run a local book club or are a local author, we'd love you to get in touch. Uh, You can contact me on heather at river.radio with any of your book news and we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas in future shows. So, Julian, let's start with those interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press. And I'll go first, because I just want to say congratulations to David Diop, who has won the International Booker for a frightening book called At Night All Blood is Black. 
Yes, David. well done. So we spoke about this earlier on. Do you remember we spoke about all the books that were in, um, nominated? All? Yes, we did. Yes. Um, and Diop is the first French writer to win the praise, uh, to win the prize. And praise, and, hopefully. And pre- well, hopefully. And it's £50,000, which Ooh. is split with his translator, Anna Moshevarkis, I think. Apologies, Anna, for getting that name slightly muddled. And the novel is about a Senegalese soldier fighting for France in the First World War. And it's had really good reviews. Great. So I think that sounds marvellous. does indeed. Well, um, to get us uh, in the mood for the next outing of James Bond on film, there's an exhibition in the Salisbury Museum of the illustrations for the nine of Ian Fleming's most memorable Bond books, including Goldfinger and uh, Thunderball. Um, these seminal images, which covered the first editions of the books, are fabulous. Goldfinger, for example, which was also one of my favourite films, features a skull with gold coins in the eye sockets, biting on a rose. Oh, it's a brilliant cover. Yeah, isn't it? absolutely. And the first edition fetched, would you believe, £50,000 at auction last year. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, really incredible. Well, the artist was um, a, a chap called Richard Chopping, and the commission very nearly went to his rival quite a surprise, is Lucian Freud. Gosh, uh, that's a big name. It is a big name, yes. Yeah. Uh, and both of uh, Freud and Chopping had gone to the same art school. Um, but in fact, Chopping's biographer found um, a, a list dated 3am, March 29th, 2004, and headed Lucian Freud. Freud, and it listed uh, 13 reasons why um, he resented him. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously not a close friendship. No, I don't think so. Anyway, luckily Ian Fleming and and Richard Chopping got on very well, and Fleming was so pleased with the image uh, for the drawings, that, uh, for Goldfinger particularly, that he increased the fee from a staggering £40 to £60. Whoa, those are the days. Oh, yes. I love that idea of getting up at three o'clock in the morning (laughs) to write a list of why you resent Somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Grumpy old man syndrome, I think. <laughs> yes, that's brilliant. <laughs> So I saw another sort of like grumpy old man, although in this instance it was grumpy old woman, Jeanette Winterton. Oh, yes. Who famously obviously yes. wrote Oranges and Not the Only Fruit. She's had a little bit of a tiz um, because her uh, later her books have just been redesigned and she hated them so much so she burnt them. Oh, no. And the poor publisher. It wasn't the covers that she disagreed with. It was actually the blurb. Oh, right. So she felt it sounded like, they, her book sounded like a Mills and Boons. Oh, right. It was a bit, oh. of, a, bit of, of toing and froing in the press, because, of course, people are saying, and what's wrong with Mills and Boons, I'd like you to know. Uh, to write, to write. They were stalwart of my mother's library, the Mills yeah, and Boons. Nothing yeah. wrong with a good Mills and Boons. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, before I go into the next bit, I just want to say to our listeners, if you hear a lot of rumbling going on, it's not because we've been eating radishes, but apparently there seems to be some construction work going on in an office downstairs, so... We, we do apologise for that. But the one piece that I've got is a classics professor um, in Cambridge has just spent 23 years reviewing the whole um, of Greek literature to produce a new Greek dictionary. And this is the first um, fresh look um, of a Greek dictionary in 170 years. Wow. 
Mm. And the Cambridge Greek lexicon intends to take the place of the existing standard works, uh, and the main difference being that all the naughty words have now been put back in and spelled out. Um, previously, to spare the blushes of our Victorian forebears, the definitions of various rude words uh, would only be translated into Latin and vice versa. In, in the Latin dictionary, they do the same and translate it into Greek, leaving thousands of school children and, uh, none the wiser about the fruity words in the dictionary. Victorians were very delicate, weren't they? Oh, they were, they? yes, very delicate souls. I don't yes. know if you've ever been to Reading Museum, but they have got the most amazing copy of the Bayer Tapestry. Really? It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Gosh. It goes right round this huge gallery. Can you imagine how big it yes. is? Yes. And there's one particular man who's my favourite, little image. And um, in the original Bayer Tapestry, it was obviously 11th century, he was nude. And when the Victorians did it, they put little underpants yes. on him. <laughs> <laughs> which I just think is marvellous. So do go along to the Reading Museum and to see that. Bear the maidenly blushes. <laughs> Absolutely. Right, and if you're listening to us live, today is the 16th of June, and this, of course, is Bloomsday in it, Dublin. Mm-hmm. So Bloomsday, for those of you who don't know, is a commemoration and celebration of the life of the Irish writer James Joyce. And it's observed annually in Dublin, and also elsewhere where there's any loads of sort of Irish people. And it's based on his most, Joyce's most celebrated novel, Ulysses, which takes place all on the same day, the 16th of June, where you've got the protagonist, Leopold Bloom, and he has his first outing with his wife-to-be, Nora Barnacle. It's a great name, isn't it? Marvellous. But what happens on Bloomsday is you get dressed up in Edwardian clothes. There's a whole series of cultural activities. So you do a pub crawl, because it's Oh, yes, of course, yes. You do a pub crawl through the pubs mentioned in the book. Right, super. And every time you go, there's a reading. And it's absolutely marvellous. And the reason I know about it is that I was very lucky to be invited by the um, Irish ambassador in India to a dinner on the 16th of June. In, in Delhi? In Delhi. Oh, gosh. And we turned up and, we, and I just thought, you know, it was a yeah. dinner, it was absolutely fine. And then all of a sudden, um, the ambassador came up to me and said, would you mind reading an excerpt <laughs> from Ulysses over dinner, over the dinner uh, table? <laughs> you had to read for your supper. It was a bit of a shock. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, we digress. So this is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up in the show, we'll be discussing those authors who write about walking and chatting with Ali Jinks from the Wallingford Bookshop about summer reading ideas. But let's first go to a conversation that I had with Cara Hunter. She's the Sunday Times bestselling novelist of a detective fiction whose plot lines cleverly twist and turn as you read them. The Whole Truth is out now, and we've previously spoken to her about this book, but I couldn't resist also talking to her about any tips she has on becoming an author and her favourite books and authors. So this is our conversation. When did you realise that you wanted to be a writer, and in fact you could make money out of being a writer? 
<laughs> well, that's the million dollar question, literally, isn't it? Most people who write have a second job. Pretty much everyone I, I know who's a writer has a second job. So I think if you go into it thinking you're going to make a lot of money, then you're probably going to be pretty disappointed. But you, sh- you should always go into it because you love it and because you have a burning need to do it. And then then if if there's any money in it, then great. And if there isn't, then you won't be disappointed. But in t- for me, I suppose I, I realised I could have a go at it when I went freelance while I was still working full time I just didn't didn't have the time and the brain space to do it so you know now you know I, I have got the time and I think that I think that's that's key really anyone who can write while they're working full-time or they've got a family and trying just to fit in in the evenings uh, or first thing in the morning well my hat my hat goes off to them because that I, I couldn't do that but yeah I suppose it's it's always been a possibility right from when I was a little girl but I didn't I didn't start till quite late in life so hopefully that might encourage people too because uh, you know it's never too late to try never say never hey <laughs> when you're looking at a book do you spend lots of time sort of researching is it so you have an idea and then you go and research or are you always researching and you just sort of say right I'm going to write a book I'm a bit of a magpie so I'm always picking bits up from here here and there and I have a notebook where I just jot things down sometimes it's just a word um, sometimes it's just some half an idea you never know when it'll come back and you should certainly write things down because if you think you're going to remember them you're going to be disappointed because your brain actually doesn't um, keep as much as you would like to think so always write stuff down that would be one piece of advice as for research uh, I try to do only what I need to do before I start writing I think we've all had the experience of great big chunks of research turning up in, in a book you're reading you're thinking oh golly this person spent ages looking at this and now we're going to get this research whether we like it or not uh, so I, I try not to do that I try to just you know put in, in into into the process only what I need and then later you know make a note in the manuscript and come back and check and just make sure that you know that it, it it does actually hold water but but mostly as I as we talked about before it's DNA and forensics these days, making sure that that's right. And, you know, because there's always someone who knows. <laughs> someone who'll read it will know better than you. I, I must admit, I really appreciate you writing the story first and then adding the research when it's relevant rather than doing it the other way around. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's always the best way. Because it's all about the story, isn't it? Absolutely. The story's got to drive the research, not the other way around. So if you were sort of looking back at your younger self, what piece of advice would you, would you give yourself in terms of being a writer start earlier and be more more confident you know don't think that you can't do it it's always worth trying but be prepared to be persistent and to learn your craft very few people are such geniuses they can sit down and write something you know something good first off having never tried before there's some people out there I'm sure can do that but most people it's a question of trying so you know everyone's got several unpublished things and probably unfinished things in their bottom drawer or in an obscure part of their computer never to see the light. So were you always a reader? Do you think reading is an important part of being a writer? Yeah it absolutely is. I I can't remember when I couldn't read. My parents told me I taught myself at the age of three and I literally cannot ever remember looking at a book and not knowing what all those you know black squiggly marks actually meant. So yes, I, I was, I've always been a huge reader, uh, and I think you have to you have to read as widely as you can to see what you think works and what doesn't. So you know, really sample everything you can um, in the genre that you're trying to write in. I mean, you, 
I, I don't read some genres, so I, but I don't try to write them either. So it do, that doesn't really matter. But I try to read very widely in crime just to see what other people are doing. And you, you can always learn from both a good book and a bad book what, what it is that's worked and what it is that hasn't. Sometimes bad books are even more instructive than good ones. <laughs> So do you have any crime authors that have particularly influenced you, either well or badly? Well, I loved Joan Smith's books. She's She hasn't published any for a long time, but back in, oh, it must have been the 90s, she published, I think it was four in the end, books with, with an academic, as a female academic as the central character called Loretta Lawson. I don't know. Um, well, they were dramatised, actually. They were, they were um, dramatised with Janet McTeer and Bill Nye and, and Melda Staunton as well, I think. They were really, really good, and I loved those. And I just loved the way she did it. It was really clever. So I suppose back in the day, that really inspired me. And I also loved the first Nikki French, The Memory Game. Again, that's a long time ago, but but that I thought that was just beautifully constructed as a as a book. You know, the story arc was really well done. So in those in those senses, in terms of being an adult, though when I was much younger, I read I probably read every other Agatha Christie there is, and uh, I, I think I'm definitely not alone in that. And that get, she she gets a lot of people started on crime and and in the best way. You know, you, just watching how she hides her criminals in plain sight is just a masterclass. You can learn a lot from that. So, do you find that you read crime books even now? Do you still read other other people's books? I read very little but crime books these days because I'm I'm always being sent them by other people to you know to read and quote so I'm, I'm very lucky because I have a constant supply and I tend to get them early as well you know before before everybody else does so I get sneak previews of things and and that's that's fabulous and and as I say I like to keep abreast of what people are doing and it's just brilliant there are so many good female writers of crime now I mean it really is a, a golden age in that sense we are we are deluged with great stuff sometimes it's it's hard to you know to know where to start but yeah no, I, you- I read loads. <laughs> Any particular ones that are coming up that we ought to keep an eye out for? Well, I I just been sent and just finished a book by Olivia Kiernan, who's another Oxford-based crime writer. She's actually Irish and she sets her books in Ireland. So they're not set here, but she, she lives here, so I know her. And I think this is her fourth off the top of my head. And it's called The Murder Box. And it's it's, um, out in July, I think. And it starts with her central detective, who's a woman in her case, getting sent this sort of box of goodies that appears to be like an elaborate role-playing game full of, you know, fake evidence and fake, you know, slides and samples and tissues and all sorts. And uh, and very, very quickly, she realises this isn't a game at all. This is actually real. So it's, it's really, really well done. And I recommend that one. That's, I think, as I said, coming out in July this summer. So that's a goodie. That's a really clever idea as well, isn't it? One of the problems with publishing is there are so many books published and it's so hard to find great, great books. So that's what the the show is all about, is trying to say to people, there are really good books out there, just try them and enjoy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There is so much and it's, it's really... You know, you're, as I say, we're we're embarrassed with, with, with riches of the amount that you can choose from now. And sometimes it's just a question of not even having heard of things because there's just so much out there. I come across new writers all the time. There's someone I only came across last year called Catherine Ryan Howard. And her book, The Nothing Man, was my favourite crime book of the year last year. Mm. And I think that's just about to come out in paperback. So I would recommend that one as well. It's really, really good. And what about non-crime books? Do you sort of go in back into the classics or? Sometimes. I mean, I don't, I, 
I don't have a lot of time to do much else other than the sort of, I mean, the reading crime I sort of see as part of my job these days, though I enjoy it. So it's a very nice part of the job, but I don't get a huge amount of time to read anything else anymore. But I I have a whole, you know, shelves and shelves and boxes and boxes of, of classics from when I did um, English. So that they're always there. They're waiting for me when I, when I sort of get the time at some stage when you're having a holiday <laughs> yeah a holiday or just decide to hang up my my pen <laughs> don't do that just yet <laughs> I'm too busy enjoying your books <laughs> so what would be a great recommendation for a good read so either one that you've just read or just a, a favorite okay well I'm gonna uh, go for another Oxford connection or a nice nice link here uh, and that's uh, Lucy Atkins book Magpie Lane which is which is really good. She's really really good writer. She writes beautifully, and uh, it's it, in some ways it was uh, it was very interesting for me to read it because it's a very similar setup to my first book, Close to Home. So it's a little girl of about the same age who goes missing in Oxford, but it's a completely different book. And this this little girl's the daughter of the master of a college, so a completely different milieu in which this happens, and it and it plays out in a very different way. But it's quite it's quite sort of spooky. It's got a so little supernatural sort of frisson in it, and and as I say, she writes really beautifully. And if if you know your Oxford. It was wonderful. I learned loads of things about this town that I didn't know before. And I you know I was at university here and I now live here. And, and it, it's just sprinkled with all sorts of goodies like that. So if you know the city, it's uh, it's a real treat. That sounds brilliant. Oh, Cara, thank you very much indeed. That is marvellous. So good luck with the whole truth. I'm sure it'll thank do you. brilliantly. <laughs> thank and thank you for recommending some books. My pleasure. <laughs> Funny, but it's true. What loneliness can do Since I've been away I have loved you more each day Walking back to happiness Whoop-a, oh yeah Said goodbye to loneliness Whoop-a, oh yeah I never knew I'd miss you Now I know what I must do Walking back to happiness with you I'm making up for things I said Whoop-a, oh yeah And mistakes to which they led Whoop-a, oh yeah I shouldn't have gone away So I'm coming back today I'm walking back to happiness I threw away This is River Radio and you are listening to Turning Pages with Heather Adams and me, Julian Ashton. Thank you for joining us. So Cara Hunter, uh, that was a lovely discussion I've just had. And she, her book, The Whole Truth, came up with a discussion that I've been having with Ali Jinks from the Wallingford Bookshop. A good favourite of ours. Absolutely. <laughs> and I was asking Ali about her recommendations for summertime reading. Super. So let's hear what she had to say. That was that was that music again. So complicated. In some ways, yes. I think being on holiday in the summertime is either an opportunity to read things that you need to take time over and in depth, so doing poetry or doing more literary novels. You know, some people really think I've got time to really think about this and relax and enjoy it and think about it. So some people do, you know, do do more literary big novels and occasionally some poetry. Other people just want to relax. And, you know, 
people either like a really lovely, sunny, happy story or crime. You can go on holiday and enjoy a really good. Yes. And the nice thing about a crime novel is it all wraps up at the end. You know, it's it's kind of a complete thing. It's it's usually by the end everything is resolved, which is the comforting thing about crime novels. You're enjoying yourself. You're having a nice time on holiday. You can just relax and enjoy a really kind of pacey thriller. So it yes. depends. It just depends on the person. I quite like a book that you can sort of be disturbed in and, you know, sort of like put it down, go off, get a drink or whatever, and then come back to it and you're straight back in. Yes, it's, it's a, a probably plot driven novels are really good for that. So you're engaged in it and you can pick it up and go, oh, right, I'm back in the story. And you've not got to try and remember who everyone is and what's going on. And so, yeah, I enjoy that as well. I love a good murder. I will say now. I really like a juicy murder. Okay. They're really fun. <laughs> Psychopaths be worse. I were very well. That always makes me sound really worrying. But I'm like, no, it's just it. I like them because they're they're really if they're good not good crime novel or good thriller, they're really cleverly plotted. And it's really hard to do that. You know, you can't meander. Everything has to mean something. You and you need to be able to read it back again and go, oh, that's that's where that happened. That's what happened. It's all there for you. And so I think it's a real skill to write a really good thriller, but equally you can just, you literally rock it through it. You're not looking for nice writing, you're not looking for anything, you just want to know what's going to happen. Which reminds me that Agatha Christie, is it true that she used to write her book and then decide who was the least likely person to be the, the murderer and then would go back and change the plot to make sure that the clues were there? I think so. And with her, she's, she was always very clear that, you had to be able to find the clues. The clues were all there. There was nothing that wasn't already presented to the reader. So you could have figured out the crime on your own. It's just that they're so clever that you, you know, your little grey cells aren't enough. And interestingly, and Guy O'Marsh, I think it was, who learnt to write crime fiction from Agatha Christie, used to take apart an Agatha Christie novel and used to take it all into its constituent parts. And that's how... She learned how to write crime fiction is by literally slicing up an Agatha Christie novel and putting all the different bits in order and working out how how, how the structure works of it. It was really interesting. Yeah. So you can actually do that with a novel. Well, isn't that what Bernard Cornwell did with Hornblower, C.S. Forrester? He dissected, because basically Sharp is Hornblower on land when you think about it. Yeah, he really is. We all always laugh about Bernard Cornwell because we don't think he can count. So Bernard Cornwell has a big thing about doing trilogies. I'm always like, really impressed, Bernard. Great, you're going to do another trilogy. Except that his trilogies, well, the current one, I think we're on book 11. So I think he has, he's, he's learned to count to three, but then can't stop. <laughs> well, we all enjoy them, so we don't mind that yeah. too much. Absolutely. So tell, tell me about your summertime readings then. What are you going to recommend to us? So we've got all kinds of different things. So we've got a couple that I thought were kind of nice, cheery reads and a good couple of thrillers so something for everybody right. so nice and cheery ones theater for dreamers by polly sampson is this glorious hot grecian 1960s set novel about a young woman discovering who who she really is and who the people that she's holidaying really are but it's a really beautiful very like victoria Hot but the island but less sad really kind of hot it's, it's a hot and steamy summer novel which is really fun the Winds Are Not is kind of fits into both. The Winds Are Not is brilliant. It's about the Queen solving crimes. That's right. And it's so much brilliant. <laughs> We've had Alan Bennett with her at the library, and now um, SJ Bennett is doing her solving crimes. So that's it, that kind of fits into both fun and not fun uh, aspects. The one that we just had Stacey Halls in because she is local. She's a local-based author. Stacey is the author of The Familiars and The Foundling. Her new Mrs. England is just coming out. 
um, all set in Yorkshire in the 1800s about a young nurse who goes to look after the children of Mr. and Mrs. England at a very beautiful country house. But things are not as they seem. And Lillian England is this really enigmatic, cold figure. And she's just, Ruby starts, the, the nurse starts to untangle what's really going on. And it's fabulous. So if you liked her previous novels, The Familiars and Founding, this one is even better, if I can say that. Oh, dig. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really good one. My favourite, which I, I know I always mention, but I'm big plug for this one, is The Miseducation of Evie Epworth by Matson Taylor, which is, um, again, 1960 set, ironically. Obviously, we're all harking back at the moment. It's about young Evie, who is growing up 16 in the 1960s in Yorkshire with just her dad, Angie moves in and starts to muscle Evie out. But Evie's got this phalanx of strong Yorkshire women behind her. And it's a riot from start to finish. And it's just a, it's such a lovely, lovely book. So I read it last summer and it's now like my summer book. <laughs> well, you recommended it to me last time we spoke and I went and bought it and it's fantastic. And I've given it to my sister to read and it's marvellous. It's such, it's, it's one of those books you go, it's a lovely book. It's really well written and it's really well played. You know, the time and the place and everything else is really, really fantastic. But it's just so nice. <laughs> Evie and Mrs Scott Pym and all the other it's it's just one of those I'm really pleased you liked it because it's one of my favorites I love so we've slightly adopted the author as our as our bookshop author because we love Matson so he'll be very pleased to hear <laughs> there's also some really good cry as I was talking about crime novels there's some really good thrillers I've just read the dead I love Holly Watt Holly Watt what what writes about an investigative journalist working in London but really her first one to the lines is about a young journalist who, who overhears a conversation in a club about big game hunting but it's more than it's supposed to be the ultimate experience and she realizes that it's actually hunting people oh, and gosh. so she so she sets out to go to the refugee camps to find out where this is going on and infiltrate this um hunt and it's fabulous and it's by the end it's terrifying it's really clearly done and she has the, the third in her investigative journalist series out called The Deadline. There's also Box 88 by Charles Cumming has just come out as well. He is a really great thriller writer. He's kind of John le Carré, Mick Heron style spies. And it's about, it's all to do with Lockerbie, bomb, Lockerbie bombing. And Box 88 is this covert intelligence system, which although the Cold War is supposed to be winding down and everything is supposed to be changing, they're not, and they are still operating in much the same way. And it's about a young spy who goes out to see what was happening, to see if he can figure out the Lockerbie crisis and what who were really were the actors, and gets captured. And it's whether whether he can save himself and his family. And it's really really tense. <laughs> That's fabulous. I've got a historical one and a modern one as well, which are my two other ones. Go on. The, the, the historical one, The Devil in the Dark Water by Stuart Turton. It's fabulous. He wrote a book called The Seven Deaths of Even Hardcastle, which is basically Agatha Christie on acid. Oh, OK. It, so it's set in the 1930s and is a country house mystery. But it's about a character who keeps waking up in different bodies and the same thing keeps happening. And he knows he has to solve it. But it's like this 1930s house party, Agatha Christie-esque incident. And it overplays and overplays. And it's just bonkers and really clever. And his new one, his second book, The Devil in the Dark Water, is to take on Sherlock Holmes. And so you have the Sherlock character, Fitz, is on a ship from Batavia to Holland uh, from the East India Company in the 1600s. And Fitz is placed in the hold and no one is allowed to talk about what he's done. No one is allowed to even mention he's there. And as the journey continues, 
this strange symbol keeps appearing on the ship, an eye with a tail. And Arendt Hayes, his associate, who is essentially Watson, he has to try and start to figure out as people start dying every time the symbol appears. And it's really clever. It's like a locked ship. No one can get out. No one knows what's going on. And this symbol just keeps appearing and you know someone else is going to die. It's really cool. And my really favourite last one is The Appeal um, by Janice Hallett, which is out in paperback in July. And it's one I really was kind of going, I'm not sure I'm going to like this, because it's written as emails and texts. And so the, the premise of it is it's two young associates of a barrister being given this case and told to go over everything because he thinks there's been a miscarriage of justice. And someone has died and someone's been convicted and he doesn't think the right person has been. And so he gets them to comb over every single bit of evidence. And it takes place around an amateur dramatic society, which is really kind of three or four families in this village and their associates and all the things that have been going on within it. And it's just so clever that you re- you realise that slowly there's and there's post-it notes arriving in it, which are them supposedly making their notes. And you suddenly have to go, oh, God, I've got to keep track of that. And I'm not a big fan of epistory kind of novels or that kind of thing. But this one works completely. And it's got a really clever twist. I really, It was fabulous. I, I read it in a weekend going, this is great. So have you read uh, Cara Hunter? So yes. She, so she does a lot of emails and post-it notes and uh, WhatsApp messages and things to add more layers to the stories, isn't she? Yes, and I think it's a really clever way of engaging your reader in it with, as well, is it's making you part of the detective process as yeah. you start to pick up on these things. And so in your head, you're going, well, it's that, that, and that's that. Ooh, how does that... It's It's a really... It's a really hard thing to pull off, I think, to make it work, that it's not jarring and you're not thinking, oh, why did you just get yeah. on with the story? Yeah. I think if you can tie it, but yes, she is brilliant. Obviously, she's Oxford-based. Yes. Yeah. Her, her novels are fantastic. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Her first one, Too Close to Home, is fantastic. That's a great selection. Then did you have a young adult book that you just wanted to I see? I do. Yes, I do. There is one um, that kind of is a crossover one. So again, it's... Young adult novels are brilliant because they can be read by anybody and they're often really sophisticated because they, they're a really good way of paring down difficult subjects. So The Great Godden is another one like Theatre Dreamers, which is a really summer novel. It's about a group of teenagers on holiday who are joined by two brothers, one of which is really kind of handsome and exciting and engaging and one of the sisters starts to fall for him and his other brother who is really surly and not engaging at all and really just doesn't want to be there. And you you start to work out why, and it's the other brother is not all he seems, and it's it's really it's kind of got that hot teenage summer vibe to it, but also is a really good mystery story at the same time. Great, well, that sounds marvellous. It sounds it takes you back to you when you're a teenager, doesn't it? All those sort of stories. It's a story because as an adult, you have been a teenager and you have done these things, and it 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 really is a great summer one because it's all again it's that hot, you know, beach summer everything's slightly different you're out it's on holiday so everything you know the norms are thrown out the window and first romance but also also realizing that people are not who they say they are all the time yeah that's brilliant (laughs) that is excellent thank you so much that's marvelous all to be added to my summertime reading books pile (laughs) i i know long may the sunshine continue so we can all sit outside and read absolutely i echo that um and that was a great 
fabulous list of, uh, of books to add uh, to my pile. But holidays, of course, formed by many different things. And I'm off to go on a walking holiday. So I'm not too sure how many books I'll be able to, uh, to get through because I'll be so exhausted at the end of each day. <laughs> I think I'll just want a little drink of wine, I think. <laughs> I'm sure so. I'm sure so. <laughs> Anyway, um, let's talk about books and yes. walking. Well, by way of introduction to, to, to my selection um, for this next section, um, I've got a little bit of a reading um, from the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides by James Boswell. Okay, let's listen to that now. On Saturday the 14th of August, 1773, late in the evening, I received a note from him that he was arrived at Boyd's Inn at the head of the Cannon Gate. I went to him directly. He embraced me cordially and I exulted in the thought that I now had him actually in Caledonia. Mr Scott's amiable manners and attachment to our Socrates at once united me to him. He told me that before I came in the doctor had unluckily had a bad specimen of Scottish cleanliness. He then drank no fermented liquor. He asked to have his lemonade made sweeter, upon which the waiter, with his greasy fingers, lifted a lump of sugar and put it into it. The doctor, in indignation, threw it out of the window. Scott said he was afraid he would have knocked the waiter down. Mr Johnson told me that such another trick was played on him at a house of a lady in Paris. He was to do me the honour to lodge under my roof. I regretted sincerely that I had not also room for Mr. Scott. Mr. Johnson and I walked arm in arm up the high street to my house in James's Court. It was a dusky night. I could not prevent him being assailed by the evening effluvia of Edinburgh. I heard a late baronet of some distinction in the political world at the beginning of the present reign observe that walking the streets of Edinburgh at night was pretty perilous and a good deal odoriferous. The peril is much abated by the care which the magistrates have taken to enforce the city laws against throwing foul water from the windows, but from the structure of the houses in the old town, which consist of many stories in each of which a different family lives, and there being no covered sewers, the odour still continues. Well, that was uh, an extract from uh, Boswell's The Journal of a Tour uh, to the Hebrides. Uh, and I just wanted to mention um, A Journey to the Western Islands of Scotland by Samuel Johnson, because in many ways, well, they are linked because it's so uh, we got two for the price of one, um, because these uh, two journals were a result of, of, of the tour that Johnson made with Boswell after Boswell had enticed the good doctor up from London. <clears throat> Pardon me. The tour took place in 1773 and Johnson published his account in 1775. However, and I think this is interesting, it took Boswell a further 10 years to publish his account, which was which came out in 1785. Uh, the trip took the two gentlemen from Edinburgh, uh, skirting the east and northeastern coast of Scotland, passing through St Andrews, Aberdeen and Inverness, whilst making their way through to the Highlands and the Western Isles. So that's quite a difficult journey in uh, the 1770s. It, it, it was. I, it, it certainly was. I mean, it was. you know, we think of it, well, well, maybe we'll jump on a plane, we'll go up and then we'll hire a car and then we'll take a ferry. But it wasn't. This is So Johnson will have had to have taken a coach up from London up to Edinburgh and 
then, as we'll find out, how things were in Scotland uh, was not as, as easy as you as you might think. Of course, because it's quite difficult to navigate because uh, all the population is really down at a- the bottom. Absolutely, it? It, it, it absolutely yeah. yes. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, they 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 um, went island hopping, which took them into Skye, Col, Rasse, Loch Kenneth, Mull, and Iona, and um, all in all the tour took them 83 days to complete, uh, with Boswell um, summarising the trip as Johnson thus saw four universities of Scotland, its three principal cities, and as much of the highlands and insular life as was sufficient for his philosophical contemplation. That's good. It was. <laughs> now, even though the Act of Union had come into force in Scotland 60 years, 66 years before Johnson and Boswell went touring, as you were referring to, the highlands of Scotland were still quite wild and in parts pretty lawless. Um, There were marauding privateers and slave ships were working the coastal waters. Oh, I didn't know that. There were. Seven uh, slavers were reported in 1774 alone. However, it must be remembered, the buying and selling of slaves was still legal until 1807 when it became illegal throughout the British Empire. So can I just ask, were the slave traders trying to get scots we're trying to pick up scots people no 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 this is this will be this will probably be bringing in um oh, bringing from, in, okay. from 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 africa to right. to uh, to sell to merchants okay. to work so yep. i i know there was a lot of um smuggling going on yep because of the high taxes that's right so that was a lot all right. of scotland um was a big sort of smuggle area it was yes and... because you've got this huge a, a massive coastline yes. which was going to be very difficult oh, to, to to police by the excise yes, men yes um and the scottish i mean and also at the same time the scottish clan system was being dismantled by act of parliament um and the population which which is quite alarming was being disarmed um and the wearing and i didn't realize the wearing of tartan was prohibited oh yes yep which i didn't i didn't really know that at all and the rule of law was by no means universal um at that stage so therefore even though they were diminishing um the the power of the clan chieftains often and that was the only authority that was around. Yes, yeah, so the problem was they were supporting the Stuart king, the, right. the Jacobites. Yes. So therefore, we ha- uh, it had to be dismantled once the union exactly. became consolidated. Yes. Absolutely, yes. yeah. So the two boys um, made themselves as comfortable as, as they could on their trip by staying in overnight in the homes of the local gentry. Um, transport, now this is interesting, they used... So actually, I cheated a bit. They did. I'm sure they did some walking, but mostly it was by carriage. Oh, this is a walking book. Yeah. Well, well, they walked to the carriage and they walked <laughs> to the horses, and they used horses as well. Um, and then, of course, they had to take uh, boats over to the islands. Um, so. Um, it's supposed it, to be very, very beautiful. Oh yes. Um, it, it, it was, it was. And, but, but Dr. Johnson made this reflection. He said, um, journeys made in this manner are rather tedious and long. A very few uh, mules require several, uh, sorry, a very few miles require several hours. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, anyway, for all that, um, that part of Scotland was such a romantic place. Uh, empty of people, unspoiled by commerce. Uh, the roads and trappings of modern 18th century life, which Johnson knew of, 
and enjoyed in his home city of London were just not there. But that said, Scotland was changing fast and Johnson actually was very worried uh, at the outset of his trip that he might have been too late to see the beauty of Scotland before he got caught up in the modern times. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, really, uh, really interesting. The thing that's, I think, really interesting, that even though these were uh, published in the, in the 1700s, both journals are still read today and enjoy today, and they're worth the effort, not least for the descriptions of what they both saw, but also seeing the social, political and legal way of life in Scotland at the time. Brilliant. Because, of course, that's the Enlightenment, isn't it? It's a very exciting yeah. time. Yeah. And when you think about it, I mean, Edinburgh became the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the seat of, 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 of medical knowledge. So there's some of the best universities um, um, yeah. uh, teaching medicine. Uh, insurance was, was being developed there. Banking even. And it was, yeah, yeah. It was a great time. Yeah, very exciting. Or it was to become a great time. OK, thank you for that. Pleasure. So I picked a very, very different book. And this is The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce. Mm-hmm. Now, Ali uh, Jinx from the Wellington Bookshop actually mentioned Rachel Joyce because she is a fabulous author. And this is a marvellous book. It was published back in 2013, so it's quite an old book. Oh, right, yes. But it really made an impression of me. And it tells the story of Harold Fry as you can probably tell from the title. Mm-hmm. And he's just an ordinary man, and he's just retired, and he's living a gentle life, much to the annoyance of his wife, um, who's probably irritated with everything he does. But anyway, one day the post arrives, and Harold gets a letter from an old flame, uh, mm. Queenie Hennessy, who's in a hospice, oh. and is writing to say goodbye. Oh. So he sits down, he really, and he writes out a letter, and he goes out to post, to post it to her. But when he gets to the first letterbox, he decides they hadn't, it was too close. So he walked to the second letterbox and then the third letterbox. And then after a while, he just decides that what he's really got to do is deliver the letter in person. So he starts this 600 mile pilgrimage up to a home in Berwick upon Tweed, Mm -hmm. nearly Scotland. Yes. And uh, and he's just in his yachting shoes and his light coat and he's left his phone behind. And he um, just carries on walking and he meets people and they and he walk and they walk along the road and he sees the changing weather and it's just absolutely marvellous and I first came across Rachel Joyce when a friend recommended me to read her book called The Music Shop which is an equally charming book that's got nothing to do with uh, mm-hmm. walking at all. But it's really great because it recommends, it's about this music shop and somebody can walk into the music shop and the owner can tell you what type of music they need for their soul. And it's just charming. It recommends Aww. lots of different um, um, albums and in fact I now kind of blew by Miles Davis it's one of my favourite albums now oh, right. because of that <laughs> I'm so easily uh, swayed yes. <laughs> yes anyway both books are populated by people you'd really like to get to mm-hmm. know gentle thoughtful and kind and the books are full of understated power and charm oh. and Stop Press I found out that um, a film is about to be made so we well, don't have any dates right. for it but Jim Broadbent <laughs> has been oh, announced super. to play Harold Fry. And you can just imagine that would just be perfect. It'll be excellent. It? Yeah, it, will. it will be excellent. Yeah. 
Right. Well, now, having slightly cheated and given you a book that was nothing to do with, or two books with nothing to do with walking, these, I can guarantee, Heather, uh, are certainly to do with walking. And I've chosen the Pictorial Guide to the Lakeland Fells by Alfred Wainwright. Perfect Mm -hmm. choice. And they were published between 1955 and 1966. And which I'll explain a little bit later in my my chat, is they are still available, published by Francis Lincoln. Um, The choice of Wainwright and his foul walks um, (laughs) must come as something of a surprise to you, Heather, as I'm sure (laughs) you know, because I'm not a natural athlete. um, And because, for me, walking serves as a fundamental purpose, which is getting from one place to another for a specific reason, such as going to the post office. And the concept of walking for its own sake is as odd to me as anyone wanting to play golf. Well, I'd like to say that walking (laughs) is a charm. (laughs) You really need to do it. But you can come walking with me well, we d- we, we did some, well, we did some, we did some walking last year in the summer, which is good. But I think it's if you've if you've got somebody with uh, you, to walk with and you can talk. But as as a solitary walker, I'm I'm not very good at that. I'd rather just I'll just go to the post office and that's it. We'll come back to that when I'm talking about my book later on. Right. But go on, okay. carry on. That said, slothful though I may be, I can appreciate the enthusiasm of others. And Alfred Wainthri- Wainwright's enthusiasm for walking the fells is to be applauded and shared. Um, now Wainwright was born in Black in 1907 and he excelled at school and managed to avoid employment in the local mills and instead found a job for himself with an engineer's department at Blackburn Borough Council. Due to his diligence and going to night school, he, he became an, uh, an accountant and made something of himself. Now, his love affair of, of, of the Lake District and walking came about in 1930 at the age of 23 when he'd saved up enough money to take a week's walking holiday with a, with a chum of his called Eric Beardsall. Um, now, interesting thing, Wainwright started the first page of uh, the pictorial guide some 22 years after that holiday um, in 1952 and, and planned each walk meticulously and conceived seven volumes at the outset, which he completed over the next 13 years at a rate of, can you believe this, a page a day. Um, and that's what he did, or rather a page a night. He sat down and wrote a page a night wow. and over 17, uh, 13 years he produced them. So the, the seven books, so it's the Eastern Fells, um, the Far Eastern Fells, the Central Fells, Southern Fells, Northern Fells, Northwestern Fells and the Western Fells. And did he do the diagrams himself? He did. And and this is the wonderful thing. Um, they're all the hand-drawn um, uh, illustrations which, which he did himself. Though, in fact, interestingly, um, he actually did take photographs and use that is his sort of aid memoir but they are ah. all of his um his his illustrations which are still available um now he originally planned the series really for his own interest rather than for publication but that changed and after initially being published by a local kendall westmoreland gazette the rights were then bought by michael joseph a big publisher um in the 1990s however they languished for a number of years until the rights were then bought in 2003 by a lakelander who i happen to know by the name of john nickel who was formerly md of Yale University Press here in the UK and he had inherited his wife's publishing company, Francis Lincoln, after her untimely death from pneumonia uh, whilst they were holidaying at their summer home in the Lake District oh, with dear. her family. It really was awful. Um, and she was such a lovely lady. I mean, yeah. In fact, a really lovely, fantastic publisher. Um, I knew her 
um, because I, I represented Frances yes. Lincoln in those early days. And she was also ahead of the game, so to speak, in the multicultural cultural children's books, amongst other award-winning things. Um, she was very good in gardening. But back to Wainwright. The collection, um, as I said, beautifully illustrated by him. And as I mentioned, um, uh, he took photographs, um, which which allowed him to do those. And Francis Lincoln has revised the pictorial guides. Um, uh, they were done in 2003 to th- 2009 to take into account of the changes in the conditions in the lakes. But the format and design is the same, along with the illustrations, which are all original, which are fantastic. Well, I think that's brilliant, because I've got to say that we have a whole set. Oh, you have? Uh, Good. When they were published by Michael Joseph. Yep. And I've got to say they're absolutely marvellous. Yeah, and they are. you can use them today, and you can take them round, and they're just pocket-sized. They are, yeah. You can go walking with them and they're charming yeah and the Francis Lincoln and they did the fax ceremony also so they're exactly the same format yeah. so a super same colouring on the jackets as those from the 1950s brilliant brilliant so I've got one and it's called I Belong Here A Journey Along the Backbone of Britain by Anita Setti oh yes now this is a lady who started walking on her own Julian oh so it's perfectly possible to do it and in fact she learned lots um, from doing it because it's just meditative I think walking right. on your own and um, anyway it started off in quite a nasty way where she was racially abused on a train journey oh. and um, she sort of used walking uh, to allow her to explore identity and place and belonging because she's a Mancunian mm-hmm. you know right. she yeah. yep. was as much right as anybody else to be on the train Mm -hmm. and um she decided to to walk the backbone of england and in in a way to turn ugliness and insult into adventure Mm -hmm. and she's not an experienced walker and she's not an experienced naturalist right but because of that it's more charming because you feel as though you're walking with her and you're learning things at the same time that she's learning them and it's a real joy um it's uh, just out now and um it's absolutely charming and also reminds us i think to stand up to racism yes in all its guises indeed yeah indeed right so moving on i've been delighted to see that slowly slowly the world is coming open and back to life and i was talking with chantelle from the little bookshop in cookham yes and she was mentioning a new event that they've got coming up in the very near future so i asked chantelle to tell us all about it do you've got any other events coming up Yes, we have an event with a local lady who's just released a book called The Devil You Know. Her name is Dr. Gwen Adshed. She lives in Berkshire and she's a forensic psychiatrist at Broadmoor Hospital. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yes, this book is unputdownable. She has written, each chapter is about a different patient that she's worked with. Obviously, she's changed names, but as you know, Broadmoor deals with violent criminals. Um, the first character in there was, a, I suppose, what you call a serial killer. And it's just absolutely fascinating. She talks about how she helps them to overcome something or, or just whatever it is that they're looking for from the therapy sessions. So it's not non-fiction? It's, it's non-fiction. It's non-fiction, uh, yeah. So it's all true, true life, true crimes. Wow. Um, you won't have read about them on Google, so there's no point in trying to look them up. And interestingly, this event is going to be in conversation with the queen of crime herself, Val McDermott. Fantastic. She is big, yeah, so they're very excited. She's a big fan of the book, and so she has agreed to come online as well. 
That would be marvellous. So again, look on the uh, the website for details. Yeah, so check the website, uh, follow us on social media, and uh, we'll be posting about it everywhere. I can't wait. I'm so excited. So I'm reading that- the, uh, the book at the moment, and I just cannot put it down. It's it's terrifying, but it's fascinating. It really sounds excellent. And to have Val McDermott support it, that's a measure of actually how, how excellent it is, really, isn't it? Yes, she's actually um, very, very supportive of independent bookshops. And I've spoken to other booksellers and they've said that they've done events with her and she was utterly charming. And they may have only had 10 people online and she didn't mind at all. And they all felt like they got a real one-to-one session with her. And, and if you haven't read any Van McDermott, then where have you been? But she she writes gritty crime. She's a fantastic Scottish writer. She's known for her body count. <laughs> They're pretty high. So if that's your kind of thing, then she has a new book out as well, which I hope she'll be talking about called Still Life. Fantastic. That is excellent. Chantal, thank you very much indeed. So uh, if uh, if you want to get uh, get involved in that in the event, um, to get the tickets, please go to um, www.thelittlebookshop.info and click on online events to register. Yeah, should be good. Yes. Fancy Vella McDermott um, I know. supporting. I think she's a great supporter of um, independent bookshops. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. It's a really good thing. Yes. So I have been to the British Museum. Have you indeed? And I saw an amazing exhibition, which is all about Thomas a Beckett. And I'm definitely going to recommend you to go and see it. Yes. And in fact, I'll come with you because oh, right. it You'll was... You'll see it again. It's worthwhile. I'll, it defi- I'm yeah, definitely going good. to see it again. And of course, Thomas a Beckett, for everybody who doesn't know, was 12th century... Um, what was he? He was uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was certainly that. Uh, he was very influential and he was big friends with King Henry and King Henry II placed him in the position of um, Archbishop of Canterbury in order to be able to control him. Mm. And of course, as soon as Tom Be- Thomas Becket got the position, he decided to make his decisions based on moral reasoning rather than whatever the king said. So... The king wasn't that happy about it, and it was the crime of the century when he was murdered inside the cathedral. So Justin Welby, who's the current Archbishop of Canterbury, um, he sort of compares it as, say, the marriage of JFK or Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. So the reason why I am mentioning this is that apart from a fabulous display of artefacts, such as reliquary caskets and fabulous stained glass window from the cathedral they include manuscripts yeah and i was really fascinated to see that the manuscripts because thomas beckett was lauded as a saint after this fabulous murder but when the tudors came along good old henry the eighth decided that he wasn't going to have any more of this sainthood and the catholic church so what people had to do is they had to destroy everything to do with thomas beckett now of course if you've got a beautiful book Mm. what do you do Mm -hmm. because these are fabulously expensive yes not very um there's not many of them no and all hand illustrated all hand Mm -hmm. illustrated and so it was absolutely amazing so sometimes they'd cut ones out cut pictures out and other times they'd scored it with red lines or flashed it with paint it was absolutely mesmerizing mm-hmm. to see the power of the word in books yes and that just made me think 
about censorship in yes. uh, in books. Yes, well, of course, it's, it's, um, it, it's rife. It's one of the things that um, dictatorial powers do. You know, for example, in Nazi Germany, with the burning of the books, um, Hitler thought this was a good way of trying to um, suppress um, books uh, of authors that he yes. disapproved of. But of course, it doesn't work. And as we know, uh, the one thing that you know that you're going to do to, to really uh, improve a book sales or access is ban it, which yes. is what Margaret Thatcher didn't realise when she banned Spycatcher. And of course, that was a fantastic, made it world's bestseller. If she kept her mouth shut, <laughs> nobody would have bought it. It was a badly written book. It was a terrible book. <laughs> yes. Spycatcher was terrible and it flew off the shelves. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was involved with the with the publisher, Heinemann, at the time. Uh, and the way we got round it was it was Heinemann Australia was publishing it. Yeah. And because we were in the EU at the time, we shipped it into Holland and then she couldn't stop it coming into the UK. Brilliant. <laughs> there you are. Right, I'm afraid that's the end of Not the again. program. I know. So I want to say thank you, Julian. My pleasure. Thank you to, you to Ali Jinks from the Wallingford Bookshop. Indeed. To Cara Hunter, whose novel The Whole Truth is a fabulous crime novel, which is thoroughly recommended. And other books that we've recommended today are David Diop, At Night All Blood is Black. Indeed. You got me on the hop. I've lost my Okay. Wins and Not by S.J. Sansom. Yep. Theatre for Dreamers by Polly Sampson. Uh, Mrs. England by Stacey Halls. Uh, the Miseducation of Evie F. Hepworth by Matson Taylor. 88 Box by Ch- uh, Charles Cumming. The Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides by James Boswell. And the Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce. And I Belong Here, A Journey Along the Backbone of Britain by Anita Setti. Fantastic. Thank you for listening and we look forward to uh, joining you uh, next week. 